is the United Arab Emirates. I think in part just because of, of the diversity of the peoples that are here. Our church in Austin is diverse. The chairman of our elders is from India. I'm from Puerto Rico. And um, I just love what God does in bringing people together from different backgrounds, different ethnicities and different cultures and allowing us to be one family. And so uh, I love the work that the Lord is doing here uh, among you. Uh, so uh, what I have been asked to do is to work through Revelation 2 and 3. And so I've selected two different messages from the churches, uh, from Jesus to the churches uh, there in Revelation, uh, Asia Minor. And then tomorrow morning, we'll look at a third. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open your copy of Scripture to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Uh, once you have that, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word? If you don't have a Bible, the text is found in the bulletin here. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we ask for grace to help in our time of need. And our need is to hear from you and not from man. Our need is to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ from the pages of Scripture by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And so, Spirit, now teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When we come to Revelation, uh, it's a hard book to understand. Um, I was asked to preach Revelation in our church, and I put it off as long as I could, uh, because there's just a lot to try to understand. However, what I realized as I preached through Revelation is that it is not as hard as we think it is. We actually make it more difficult than it is. Uh, Revelation is a letter, just like the New Testament letters. It is a letter written to a specific audience, seven churches, seven real churches in Asia Minor. I take those churches to be representative of all churches. A number seven is a number of completion. And even though they're specific churches, those churches represent churches throughout the history of the church. Um, also, uh, it is a circular letter. So I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the churches in the United Arab Emirates. And he wrote one letter. And the letter would first of all go to Abu Dhabi. And it would be read at the Church of Jesus Christ in Abu Dhabi. And then it would go to Dubai. And it would be read at the Church in Dubai. Then it would go to Ras al-Khaimah in 
Fujairah and so on and so forth until it made it to the seven churches, let's say, of the United Arab Emirates. Within that one letter, though, there would be specific messages to the church in Abu Dhabi, to the church in Dubai, to the church in Ras al-Khaimah, to the church in Fujairah. But what's interesting is inside the message to each individual church, there is a command for all the churches to listen to what is said to each individual church. The reason is, I think these seven churches that are representative of all churches have unique problems. And what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking to each of these churches and their specific problems, but he wants all the churches to listen in. Now I take Revelation 2 and 3 to represent seven particular dangers that the churches are facing. Each church is facing a specific danger, but I think these seven dangers represent the dangers that the church of Jesus Christ faces throughout history. I don't think these are the only seven dangers, but I think these are representative dangers. Let me give you a big picture of Revelation so you can see how it works. First of all, what we need more than anything is to see and savor the glory of the risen Christ. And so that's how Revelation begins. It begins as a letter with, with a typical epistolary introduction, identifying who is writing, identifying the audience, but immediately it goes to a picture of the risen and exalted Christ. So Revelation is a letter written to churches that are suffering and in persecution. Churches that are in great suffering and the very first thing that they need is to see the risen Christ. And so there's this glorious depiction of the risen Christ. But then in chapters 2 and 3, we see the different context that each of these churches is facing. Now, here's where this becomes really important. Because we tend to get bogged down by what we experience. And when we see the suffering and persecution that's around us, we get easily discouraged. And so in chapter 4, John is invited to come to the throne room. And from the throne room, what he sees is a completely different picture. Revelation 2 and 3, there's chaos in this world. Christians are suffering, facing even death. But in God's throne room is peace and the exaltation of the living God. In Revelation chapter 5, God hands all authority over to the lamb that was slain. And from Revelation 6 all the way to Revelation 19, what we see is the unfolding of history under the authority of the Lamb. And what actually is happening in this letter is the reminder that while we live in Revelation 2 and 3, God is on his throne and Jesus is directing all of history to his appointed end. Where in Revelation chapter 19, he comes and he judges all of his enemies and the enemies of God's people. And in chapter 20, he addresses every one of his enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then he brings us into the new temple, the new Jerusalem, and the new creation where we will dwell with him forever and ever and ever. Isn't that a glorious picture? So we survive now in the midst of our difficulties with the vision of the risen Christ in mind and understanding where we're going. Now, what's interesting is each of these letters is actually structured very similarly. So just look here with me. What we see in this structure is, is, is 
some helpful understandings of how to read these letters. They're, they're not letters, each of these seven uh, messages, they're not letters so much as messages. Revelation itself is the letter, and these are messages to specific churches. They're not isolated, even though the message is to each church, but they're for all to hear. All the churches were to read aloud all the messages for the other churches, including their own, and obey all the messages to each of the churches. And they're not random. They're structured. There is a structure to these messages. First of all, it begins with an address to the angel of the specific church. Angel, I take to be a heavenly being here in Revelation. Some people take angel to be like the senior pastor of the church. I think that's a possibility, but I think the context of Revelation, for me, helps me understand these are heavenly beings that are being spoken of here. An angel is simply a messenger, but it begins by the address to this angel of a specific church. And then an aspect of the identity of the risen Christ taking from chapter one is applied specifically to the church. So you have this glorious picture of the risen Christ in Revelation chapter one. Each of these messages takes one of those aspects of the description of the risen Christ and applies it to their specific need. And then there is an assessment of the church by the risen Christ. There's a commendation, usually begins with, I know, like, I know your works. Now, Sardis and Laodicea are exceptions to the commendation. They're in such situations that they actually receive no commendation from the risen Christ. But then it's followed by a rebuke. I know this, but I have this against you. And again, what's interesting is this is except for Smyrna and Philadelphia. And we'll see in just a few moments with Smyrna that Jesus offers no rebuke to this church. Then after the rebuke, there's a, com there's a call to repentance and a threat of judgment if they don't repent. And then there's an exhortation for all to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and then a promise to overcomers. All these promises relate to the realities expected in Revelation 21 and 22. So do you see how the, the letter is structured? It begins with a picture of the risen Christ taken from chapter one, and it ends with a promise of what we're to expect in Revelation 21 and 22. And those are applied specifically to the danger that the church is facing. Now, one of the things that this should help us to understand is that our God is not a random God. We even see in how he has revealed himself and what he wants us to hear, the order of this God. Even in this literary genre that we call apocalyptic literature, that's hard for us to understand. We see the order of our God and how wise he is, even in how he communicates to us. I want you to also consider that while five out of the seven churches are rebuked, listen carefully, while five out of the seven churches are rebuked and threatened with judgment, they're still churches. And even in Ephesus, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, where Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand, he still hasn't removed their lampstand, and he dwells among them. And that should give us pause when we judge other churches that perhaps are disordered and perhaps are not where we think they should be, even doctrinally. It should give us pause and humility to understand that Jesus is much more patient with his churches than perhaps we are at times. And so 
I think it's helpful for us to, to, to realize that. The other thing it helps us to understand is that Jesus offers us a grounds for hope for churches that are disordered and perhaps don't have the right doctrine that they should have. Again, this, this should cause us to, to humility, patience, to withhold judgment, and to pray for other churches. One of the things that we should be doing is praying for other churches, especially churches that may not have what we would consider right doctrine. We should be praying for these churches. So let's consider what I call the second danger here in these churches. And the second danger is the danger of a fear of suffering. Imagine that um, you are being persecuted and perhaps some of you have experienced persecution. Imagine the threat of persecution, not, not the first Peter kind of persecution. Uh, in the United States, uh, Christians are facing some kind of persecution, but we have to distinguish between kinds of persecution, suffering just because you're a Christian. And so Peter writes his letter to the Christians in Asia Minor, warning them about the persecution that they will face, encouraging them to endure, but the persecution they're experiencing at the time is not the kind of persecution of Revelation 2 and 3, the kind of where they're threatened with death and um, uh, martyrdom and those kinds of things. In 1 Peter, it's more like loss of privileges, loss of social status, perhaps uh, a believing wife being uh, rejected by her believing husband, or a believing slave being persecuted in the workplace. And so that's a different kind of persecution. It's still persecution. It's still suffering because you're a Christian and because you identify with Christ, but it's not the level where your life is being threatened. That's where we are in Revelation chapter two and three. Now imagine, if you will, you are a husband or you're a wife and you have children and a government comes to you and says, you must renounce Jesus is Lord, or we will start killing your children. Imagine what that might be like. And imagine what that fear might tempt you to do. So in those situations, the fear of suffering might lead you to deny Christ. And these are the kinds of sufferings Christians have faced throughout the history of the world, and throughout the history of the church. And some Christian believers are experiencing this today. You know, we happen to live in the United States in a place where we still have religious freedoms, even though it's very hard uh, to be accepted in the culture because we're Christians. You better understand your situation and your context here. Um, you know, clearly there are some freedoms to gather as we're experiencing here, but certainly some of those freedoms are limited uh, to a certain degree. So. As we think about the fear of Christian suffering, it is the fear that when suffering is threatened to us, that we might deny Jesus Christ. And I wonder why we're surprised by this. I wonder why we're surprised that we will suffer. You know, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so, as Christians, there should not be an expectation that we will merely be received by the world. And 
even Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that await you. So, so the Spirit, through the New Testament writings, prepares us to face Christian suffering. And by Christian suffering, I don't mean just general suffering. I mean suffering simply because you identify yourself as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. But we are surprised, aren't we? And again, I can only speak of our context in the United States. I think one of the reasons American Christians are surprised by suffering is because we crave comfort and we crave peace. And we're surprised when that peace is undone or that comfort is interrupted. And so there is a sense in which I'm an American, I have certain rights, and when those rights are taken away, then we somehow think that this is surprising. One of the things that I've also noticed throughout the world is the spread of prosperity theology. I mean, this is very prominent in Latin America. I don't know how prominent it is in other parts of the world. I know it is prominent in Africa as well. But it's this idea, if I do certain things, God has to bless me. And so if you embrace prosperity theology, and then things don't work out like you were told they were going to work out, then that's surprising to you. And it is surprising to many. So how, to, how should the church respond to increasing hostility? How, how should we as Christians live in a culture that Jesus says will hate us? Well, Christians have wrestled with this question for a long time. Uh, some Christians have had a, a stance of the church against the world because of the hostility that the world has against the church. The stance has been, we are against the world. This has been characterized generally by a fighting for purity, uh, cultural war, uh, fighting against the cultural accommodation of the church. We see a, a lot of this in the United States at this present moment. We actually see this in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. In Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the church in Ephesus is fighting for pure doctrine. And it's very interesting because this was their problem. We know a lot about the church in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Paul called to himself the elders of the church in Ephesus and warned them that from among their own, ravenous wolves would arise. When Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus, he urges Timothy to stay on at Ephesus to confront the false teaching. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy to remind him to endure suffering, to preach the gospel, and to not be ashamed. And so this is all the church in Ephesus. Of course, we have Paul's letter to the Ephesians as well. What's interesting is by Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, they have corrected all their false doctrine. They have identified the false apostles, and Jesus commends them for that. But in pursuit of right doctrine, they abandon love. And so Jesus says, that is not right. You cannot separate truth from love. You must maintain both. And so we see some churches that their stance in these times is to fight and combat. We are against the world because the world is against us. Now, some churches have tried to blend in with the world. Let's call this relevance. The church is to be relevant to the culture if it is to reach it. And so one response in a world of hostility is to try to win the favor and the, the hearing of the world. Another approach has been 
to just remove oneself from the world. It's called a separation. In other words, the world hates us. So what we're going to do is we're going to move out and we're just going to have a Christian community far away from the world. We're just going to separate ourselves from the world because the world is corrupt and we have to leave the world. And then another approach has been the church in the world, but not of the world. It's called this faithful witness. So the church endures faithfully as a witness in this world. Now, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, in his book, Christ and Culture Revisited, argues that instead of saying we must adopt one of these stances in total, that really there are different times where we must engage different approaches. There are times where the church is required to fight for orthodox theology. There are times where the church is to disengage from culture. There are times where to be enter into the world and be a faithful witness like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, being in the world but not of the world. And there are times where we can try to win the world with, uh, with our testimony. But the problem that we have here in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, is that the church is facing the threat of persecution, the, the threat of suffering, and Jesus is trying to prepare them to not be afraid of this, to not be afraid of suffering, lest they would not endure in the faith. And so this is what we see happening here. I want us to consider what, how Jesus prepares his church to face suffering. And here's simply what I want us to, to remember. When we remember who Jesus is and what he has promised, we will not be afraid of Christian suffering. When we remember who he is and what he has promised, we will not fear Christian suffering. And that's how Jesus is preparing the church in Smyrna to endure suffering. He tells them who he is and he reminds them of what he has promised. There, there are two commands in this letter as we read it. Uh, we see we see one in verse 10 don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer now, I don't know how helpful that is to you you know if you have children uh, we have five daughters uh, my oldest is 32 my youngest is 20 and our 23 year old ever since she was a little child has been the most frightful child we were camping in our backyard and um, remember we have five girls the neighbors in God's providence had three boys and so I was camping in the backyard with my girls, and at that point, she was two and a half years old. The neighbor boys, being boys, came in the dark, and they had this horrible looking mask. They unzipped it and screamed. And my poor little two and a half year old girl is shaking and screaming and shaking and screaming. It, it literally took me minutes to calm her down. That left her traumatized to the point where she was in school later, she drew the mask. All her whole life, she's been a frightful child. And we live in a house that has two stories. And, uh, and it's not like here where things are made of, of hard materials. Uh, our house is framed with wood. And so almost every night, we would hear, Doom. and she would come in our bedroom. Literally almost every night, for years and years and years and so we learned to put a pallet at the end of our at the end of our bed so that when she came down we would just kind of calm her down and, and let her sleep there to this day she's 23 years old and she's scared of everything it, it, it would not help me to just say Zoe don't be afraid 
Because fear is not always logical, is it? And so she, in her fears, would not be helped by me just simply saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the dark. Don't be afraid of that noise. So what would Jesus tell us? Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. See, Jesus knows and understands that the threat of suffering is real and that it is frightful, isn't it? But he commands us not to be afraid. This is a command of our Lord Jesus. Don't be afraid. And so we need to investigate why would he say this to us? How could he say this to us? And what does he say to us that would help us overcome this fear that we would have of losing our own lives? There's a second command here, and it's also in verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. You will experience affliction for 10 days. Here's a command. Be faithful to the point of death. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the point of death, but this counsel doesn't sound helpful, does it? Don't be afraid and be faithful even if you die. It doesn't sound helpful on the face of it. These are the two commands Jesus gives his church. Don't be afraid and be faithful even to the point of death. What, what I want us to see is that these commands are not irrational, they're not illogical, but Jesus gives us everything we need to not be afraid, and he gives us everything we need to be faithful even to the point of death. And that's what the point of the letter is, of, of this message is. So, so how can we obey Jesus' commands to not be afraid and to be faithful unto death? Well, the point of the letter here, of this message is, number one, remember the risen Christ. Remember the risen Christ. In one sense that we can say this is, this is the message to all the churches. Remember the risen Christ. Remember who Jesus is. And remember who Jesus promised to be for us. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. This is what Jesus wants you to know. This is how Jesus can say, don't be afraid, be faithful unto death. Because he reminds you exactly who he is. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the one who was dead and has come to life. As the first and the last, Jesus is sovereign over all of history. He is sovereign over all of history because everything is from him. Jesus is the creator of all things. He is sustaining all things. He is guiding all things to its appointed end. Remember the, the, the outline of Revelation that I told you? In Revelation 6, Jesus receives all authority from God, and he is directing all of history toward Revelation 19, toward his return in Revelation 21 and 22. 20, 21 and 22. Jesus is the first and the last. He is the one who is sovereign over all of history. He is the one who uh, not only are, th are all things from Jesus as the creator, uh, all things are through Jesus. And what I mean by that is everything comes through Jesus. He is the one that provides everything for us. And Jesus is the goal of all things. All things are for Jesus. So Jesus is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. 
and he is in control of everything and all of history, including your history. It's one thing for us to say, yes, I know Jesus is in charge of history. So when we read Revelation and we understand what's going on in the three cycles that we see of the judgments being poured out on the earth from the throne room, when we read Revelation, we're, we're to be reminded that Jesus is sovereign over this. When you look around you and you see the chaos in this world, Revelation is meant to remind us Jesus is sovereign. God is on his throne and he's directing everything. There's nothing that happens outside the sovereign rule of King Jesus. And there's something that we can wrap our minds around that. But I think sometimes it's harder for us to wrap our minds around this reality. Jesus is also sovereign over my history. You see, it's one thing to say, yeah, Jesus is sovereign over the tsunamis and the earthquakes and he's, he's sovereign over the Christians that are being martyred. But there's just something that we don't always connect. He's sovereign over my history. So I wonder, I wonder what you're experiencing right now that's hard. I wonder what, what you're going through right now that you find terribly difficult. Do you understand Jesus is the first and the last? And he's not only sovereign over all of history, he's sovereign over your history. In fact, I would point you to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and I would remind you to meditate on those passages. We, we go to those passages a lot, right? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he called, he also predestined those who... And, and, and what you see is this chain of salvation. And what Romans 8, 20-30 helps us remember is that God is using everything for our good. And our good is to be conformed to his son because that brings him glory. And so everything that we're experiencing, God is using for his glory and for our good. But here's the other thing that Romans 8, 20-30 reminds us. God has worked all of history. Listen, God has worked all of history to bring you to himself. He knew you from the foundation of the world. And he worked all of history to bring about his son in the flesh at the appointed time. In order to walk on this earth and obey the Father completely, and then go on the cross and to die for our sin so that we would have forgiveness. And at some point, if you're a Christian here this morning, this, this afternoon, at some point God used different circumstances, different people to come into your life, different people to speak to you of Jesus. God is the one that was doing all that to bring you to himself. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is a good and comforting doctrine. And, and what we see is this, this God who sent his son, who gave him all authority, who's ruling all of history as the first and the last, is also the God that used every circumstance to bring you to himself. And don't you think, Romans 8, 28 through 30, don't you think, if he worked every circumstance to bring you to himself, don't you think he can keep you and bring you all the way home? This is good news, isn't it? Jesus is the first and the last. He is in total control of all things, including our lives. 
Jesus is in control of all the history, including our history. And this Jesus, this Jesus who is in charge of all history, he took on our humanity and he came into our history in order to save us. And he in flesh, just like us, faced suffering and persecution. He was mocked, he was spit upon, he was beaten, and ultimately he was killed on a cross. And so Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. So Jesus is not saying these words from someone that doesn't know or understand. Is someone who took on our humanity and suffered and died. He says, don't be afraid. Endure faithfully unto death. He is saying that as one who did it himself. But he's not just the first and the last. Look at what it says here. The one who was dead and came to life. So death did not have the last word. Jesus died and he rose again. And again, this is good news. Jesus faced persecution even to the point of death and rose from the dead. Death did not have the final word. This is why Jesus can say, don't be afraid. Be faithful even unto death because death does not have the final word. Peter, I love the way Peter puts it. He says that we are following in Jesus' steps. And the language that Peter uses is the language of children tracing letters to learn their alphabet. And that's how we're learning to be Christians. And that's how we're learning to be like Jesus. Just like we learn our alphabet as children. And one of the things that the New Testament reminds us is that we're tracing Jesus' steps into persecution, into suffering, and for some of us, maybe even unto death. But death does not have the final word. Because Jesus died and rose again, we too are following Jesus, not just into suffering and death, but we're following Jesus' steps into resurrection and glory. And so when we understand who Jesus is, he is the sovereign king of kings who rules over all of history. He is the one who has defeated death so that we no longer have to be afraid of death. When we understand that, even though we die, yet shall we live again. When we understand that truth, we know we don't have to be afraid of death, right? And we know we can be faithful unto death because death has been defeated. Jesus has conquered death. And when we begin to understand that and believe that, we will no longer fear. So, we may be called to die, but Jesus has conquered death. So be faithful even unto death. Uh, one of my favorite stories is that of Polycarp, who was a bishop of Smyrna. In AD 155, he was martyred. He was commanded to renounce Christ at the threat of death. And this is what he said, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You see, Polycarp understood who Jesus is and he understood what Jesus had done. He had conquered death. And so he knew because Jesus lived and died and rose again and death has no power over him. He did not have to be afraid. And he was faithful unto death. Notice, as we remember the risen Christ, Jesus understands exactly what we are facing. Verse 9. 
Jesus says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. This is a helpful perspective. I used to wonder what it meant to live by faith and not by sight. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes we live by the sight of our circumstances and we're overwhelmed with life. Oftentimes we live in Revelation 2 and 3 instead of Revelation 4 and 5. To walk by faith and to live by faith is to understand who Jesus is and what he has done in spite of what we're experiencing and in spite of our circumstances. And so Jesus says, I know your affliction and I know your poverty. Those are real. The suffering is real. The poverty is real. But Jesus says, that's what you see from this perspective, from, from the ground. But when you come up to the throne room, and when you see things from my perspective, you are rich. You are, you are rich with a wealth that cannot be taken away. You are rich with a wealth that is incorruptible. I mean, Jesus himself is the one who said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for your reward in heaven is great. So not only do we not fear death, we understand that we're not afraid of death because Jesus has conquered death, but we also understand that our reward in heaven is great. And what we get is God himself. He is our reward and, and we will live with him and dwell with him forever and ever in a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. But notice how well Jesus knows the Smyrnans, the Christians in Smyrna. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. He also says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Christians in Smyrna specifically were suffering at the hands of Jews. It may be hard for us to understand, but the reality is, is that Jews was, was a religion that was allowed in their Roman context and Christians were coming in and and they were basically receiving the promises of the Jews and so I can imagine that within the Roman government they don't know any difference between the Jews and the Christians the Jews want to maintain their rights and they're being encroached upon by the Christians and so what did the Jews do they begin delivering Christians over to the governing authorities for persecution we see this in the book of Acts, don't we? We see this as we read of Paul's missionary journeys, how he would go to a synagogue, then he was kicked out of the synagogue, and how other Jews then persecuted Paul, and how they went behind Paul and undermined his gospel ministry. This is exactly what we see going on here in Smyrna. The Jews are turning Christians over to the governing authorities. They have the legal standing and protection and they wanted to oust the Christians. And what's interesting is that the Jews are doing this in part because they think they're the people of God. But Jesus says they are in fact not the people of God. They are actually a synagogue of Satan because they're doing the work of Satan. They're accusing the brothers and they're turning them over to the authorities. And so Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. But it's not just against uh, other religious persons that they're suffering. Uh, look at verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So some of them will be put into prison. So they're suffering also at the hands of governing officials. 
one of the things that we see in Revelation is that behind corrupt government stands the beast. Uh, behind corrupt government stands the dragon. The beasts are representative rulers that are influenced by the dragon or the devil. And so Satan stands behind these corrupt structures like government, false religion, and secular culture. Satan stands behind them, and Jesus explains that he is using these things, and the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. But notice that this suffering is to a particular end. It is to test you. And so even the suffering that we face is something that God uses for our good to conform us to the image of his son. It is used to test us and to test our faith and to strengthen our faith. And frankly, one of the things that we learn through the New Testament is that suffering is actually a means God uses for our perseverance. It is a mean that God uses for our endurance to test our faith and also to strengthen our faith. But there is a glimpse of good news here. Look at verse 10 again. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of your prisons to test you, and you will experience affliction for how long? 10 days. Right? The point of this is not try to figure out what the number 10 means and what it represents. The point is to say, look, Jesus, who is the first and the last, will limit your suffering. This is just for a little while. It is a light momentary affliction that is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. One of the themes that we find throughout Revelation that we also see in Daniel is the fact that Jesus in his mercy will cut suffering in half. Rather than the full seven days, it will be three and a half days. This is the mercy of the Lord. He knows our suffering. He tells us, don't be afraid. Endure, endure even unto death. But notice the mercy of our Lord who says, but I will limit your suffering. You will only suffer here for 10 days. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows all things. Therefore, one of the things missing from this message is there is no rebuke. There's no call to repentance. And there's no threat of judgment. Jesus comes along his suffering church. And he is merciful and he is gracious. But the fear of persecution is real. So we endure faith by remembering who Jesus is and what he has done. But secondly, we endure persecution by remember what he has promised to us. Remember the promise of the risen king. So how do we endure? How do we Endure without fear and how do we endure until the end even to the point of death number one remember the risen Christ number two remember the promise of the risen Christ Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death Did you hear the promises in there? All who endure faithfully to the point of death receive the crown of life. In this context, the crown would be a garland or a wreath that would go to the victor. I'm sure you're familiar with the Olympic Games. You know, they get a gold medal. In these times, the winner would get uh, a wreath. That would be the crown. And uh, it was very precious to the victors of the different events. Here, 
Paul, uh, Jesus refers to the crown of life. I take that to mean the crown that is eternal life. In other words, to the ones who endure faithfully to the end, even unto death, you receive life. You receive eternal life. This is a crown that awaits us. All who endure to the end, faithfully even unto death, will receive this. The opposite of this is the second death. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches uh, here, the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. I take the second death here to be hell. Uh, where do I get that from? I think, I think we see that in Revelation 20, verse 6 and 14. Revelation 21 and verse 8. It is fleshed out throughout this letter that the second death is hell itself. But all who endure faithfully to the point of death will never be harmed by the second death. Going back to Polycarp, after he said, no, thank you, I will not renounce Jesus, the proconsul came back to him and he threatened Polycarp with the reality of wild beasts and fire. This is how Polycarp responded. Thou threatenest me with fire, which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. That's just an eternal perspective, isn't it? He basically says, look, you can, you can burn me and I'll burn maybe for an hour, but you understand what you're facing? You're facing the judgment of eternal fire. So you bring it on, is what Polycarp said. History records that soon after, the people began to gather wood, the Jews especially, eagerly assisting the authorities, and Polycarp was burned at the stake. Those who persecute the people of God will taste the second death, that eternal conscious torment in hell. But all who endure to the end will receive the crown of life, the eternal life, and they, they will never be harmed by the second death. If you identify with Christ, you will be persecuted. That's just a reality. And so I ask you as we bring this to a conclusion, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that you're most afraid of? Do you believe Jesus is sovereign over all things, over all of history, including your history? And can you trust in the Jesus who died and rose again from the dead? Do you believe that you will share in his victory over death and hell? I don't know about your context here, but in our context it's becoming evident that it is harder and harder to, become a, to, to call yourself a Christian in the United States for, for a variety of reasons. What are we to do? How should we respond? Some Christians have tried to be relevant, try to be like the world in order to win the world. We are living now in the United States in such a hostility that it doesn't matter how much you appease to the culture, the culture is unforgiving and unaccepting. Some will choose to escape, to withdraw altogether but there's nowhere that we can get away from evil. 
because we ourselves are sinners in need of grace and mercy of God. And Jesus is calling us to endure faithfully in this world. Some will try to maintain doctrinal purity, call out all the problems with the culture, but they will fail to love. What we must do is we must maintain doctrinal purity. We must emphasize the ministry of the Word of God. We must express the love of God toward one another and those who don't know Christ. But we must also prepare ourselves for Christian suffering. And this is what Jesus is trying to do to the church in Smyrna. We will share in Jesus' sufferings. But the good news is that we will also share in Jesus' victory. And we already have. Jesus has been victorious over sin and death. And he is doing a work in our lives now, including using suffering to make us look more like himself. So let us endure faithfully even unto death, not being afraid, but knowing who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what he has promised us. And all who endure to the end will receive the crown that is eternal life and will never be harmed by the second death. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you and we thank you for these promises and this good news. Father, encourage us to be faithful. Remind us who you are so that we won't be afraid. And Father, help us to encourage one another so that we may endure faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, it's a refreshing break. So go get food and drink for about 10 minutes or so.